Johnny Coleman is a writer and organizer based in Los Angeles and a member of the No Olympics LA Coalition, which was launched in 2017 by the Housing and Homelessness Committee of the LA chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. The coalition has since expanded to include over two dozen partner organizations based in LA and California, as well as a growing transnational movement with dozens of groups around the world. And we're sure to get into this in today's episode. Johnny has also published widely on many of the harms associated with the Olympics and the Olympic Games in places like Jacobin Magazine, Knock LA, The Nation, The Appeal, Deadspin, Slate, and many others. Johnny, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today in LA, California? Thank you so much for having me. I'm um, a little hot. You know, we're in the pits of summer, summer Olympic season in a dying planet. And um, LA is just wild. Um, it's nonstop with kind of housing, homelessness, policing stuff. Um, so yeah, this is my least favorite time of year, um, but happy to be here. and. Um, and to get into all this Olympic madness, which is just so multi-layered at this point. Um, it's kind of been exhausting, I think, through a lot of people who have been going through this cycle of Tokyo 2020. Yeah, especially given that the, J the games in Tokyo just wrapped up, and, and I imagine it's been frustrating and tedious over the past several weeks to kind of see this thrust in front of us at, at every moment we, t we turn on the television or listen to the news at, um, at some point. So I, I definitely uh, appreciate that. Let's start off um, just with getting your take on telling us about what an Olympics L.A., uh, uh, no Olympics LA is the, the the team in general, how it came together, who you are, what you aim to achieve, and through what means you you hope to achieve some of your goals. Sure, yeah. Um, so you know, like I said, I think this is my least favorite time of year. Part of that is now because um, things really got going with the LA bit about four years ago, exactly. Um, I think today day actually uh the day we're recording this is the day i think it was rubber stamped at city hall i'm just realizing um august 11th 2017 um so that was a very upsetting day but um anyway about six months before that or a little bit around six months before that um i had met a lot of folks um through dsa as uh, housing and homelessness committee which had you know dsa at the end of 2016 had this big kind of russian membership from bernie and you know trump got elected and all that stuff um and so i and a lot of other people got thrust into kind of doing local organizing and homelessness was really and my own you know struggles as like just a renter trying to stay uh in this city after 20 years um was really drawn to those issues and and policing and immigration at the beginning of 2017 was really at the forefront with Trump being elected and the immigrants' rights movement having a lot of energy and, and visibility in the, in the kind of battle over sanctuary and cities. And, um, all, you know, all this, the confluence of this was happening with Eric Garcetti getting reelected unchallenged for a second term, even though people were pretty disappointed from his first term. Um, and he used to be head of city council, just an insider. His dad was Gil Garcetti, the old DA, uh, the, the OJ DA, I think people would know him from. And, I and a lot of other people, a lot of other people we were working with have been organizing a lot longer than I have, but I personally was getting very attuned to, in, that, in my writing as well as like paying attention to like LA's oligarchs and Casey Wasserman kept coming up again and again for his role in media. He was rumored to be the original uh, secret financer behind the ringer. 
Um, he has a stake in Vox Media, which owns a big slice of the internet. Um, he has a lot of other web interests and he kept coming up again and again. And I was working for Curved actually, which is a, a Vox property. And I was really dismayed that there was no, in the press, any media sort of critical coverage of this Olympic bid that as Boston had run 2024 out, uh, we all of a sudden became a front runner by default. And, and our political culture at the time and still to this day for a large extent was still very much everything at city hall was i think it was 99.73 percent of the time voting yes unanimously for the past like 10 years or something like that so that was the culture um we knew that garcetti was bringing this in and was going to have a lot of support at city hall we formed um realizing kind of one of dsa's questions and a lot of these other people and that was like a big funnel for a lot of this energy then was like what do we do with what do we do that isn't duplicative and like redundant for the work that's already being done by the la tenants union by blm by so and so uh, all these other like really awesome groups that were doing good work then and um you know that year i think homelessness went up 23 percent in la 73 percent in latin population in la which was a which was a new surprising kind of spike um police had lapd killed the most people that year um in in the nation again you know uh we had the most we had the most undocumented immigrants and no real actual and still to this day no real sanctuary protecting them and so all these other groups really couldn't handle the issues that the olympics make worse and that's that we recognize that oh it's going to be awful for evictions awful for displacement homelessness um policing and we can get into that in more detail if we need to but like all the other groups however who are already doing that work were really overloaded with the amount of crisis organizing that was happening and saw that this was kind of we were going to be stuck with this bid and that there was an opportunity to fight and and, and we knew it would, it would go past august right like it would be probably a multi-year fight or maybe a forever fight and we very quickly got a lot of groups on board like i said all these different locals from the la tenants union dsa obviously ground game and other groups that have since emerged like koreatown for all and cced in chinatown and people doing hyper local organizing and um yeah and we just kind of mounted more knowing that the media would come and that we needed to kind of put some sort of uh front out there to saying that we don't want this and here and like a really strong analysis of why because at that time too the olympics was really struggling with we we're having problems finding host cities that want to bid and so they're moving to this new like quote privately financed quote low impact quote like I don't know, low harm version of the Olympics uh, and no build is one of the other parts. And we're like, oh, this is really bad. This is a really bad trend. We need to get in front of this. And then we started talking to folks in other cities as well, like from Tokyo, who have been fighting it for a while. Um, folks in Korea who had the Pyeongchang Olympics upcoming in 2018. Rio, obviously, we had a lot of different connections, people who had lived in Rio and who are now living in LA, researchers, scholars, organizers, and kind of who have since joined our movement. And we just know it's, uh, LA is just like in an awful place already. This was in 2017 and things have only continued to get worse. And um, yeah, that's kind of a little bit about the backstory. And then, and then the transnational layer came on top and now we're doing part of our work is just kind of trying to stop them in general because we don't think it's really that useful if you just run it out of LA. 
Yeah, wow. Thank you so much for really, really laying all that out for us. And we're definitely going to be teasing out a lot of these issues when it comes to pushing people out and homelessness and gentrification and increased policing and all this stuff. Um, But you already started talking a little bit about the um, LA 28 bid. And so we want to to dig into that a little bit more uh, to kind of understand how the bid came about. Now, it seems like we are hearing, and we have been hearing a lot of stories about how the Olympic warding process is truly corrupt. And as you noted, that they are increasingly finding it difficult to mask the ugliness of the games and to find people willing to put up bids um, due to the financial burden, downloaded taxpayers, forced displacement, which you mentioned, et cetera, that go along with awarding the games and essentially putting the games into action. Now, could you explain to us who and what organizations were at play in the LA LA 28 bid, um, for example, how the bid came to fruition, how it took shape, and ultimately how it became successful in securing the games despite really notable opposition. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the two key figures behind the LA 28, or, you know, originally LA 24 bid were um, Eric Garcetti, our still current mayor, although he might He's up for, to be confirmed to be the ambassador to India any week now, it seems. Um, and Casey Wasserman, who is one of the richest and most influential people in LA, both of them are, you know, from now, what is our, our political dynasties. Casey Wasserman's grandfather, Lou Wasserman, was a big Hollywood fixer. He's the guy who um, is rumored, is, is the legend has it got Reagan into politics, so we can thank him for that. Um, and was was mixed up with a lot of a mob, yeah, mob money, yeah. So like, talk about like, you know, LA is considered or perceived, I think, to be a place that has just all this new money and whatever. But like, no, they're at this point, there are several generations deep of like, you know, real estate tycoons, newspaper tycoons, all these kind of you know people that become these dynastic like quote philanthropic families, and the Wassermans are definitely one of them. Um, like I said, the the grandfather had some dubious like relationships with the mafia. And then the son, Jack Myers, also was disgraced and a financial criminal. That's why Casey took his grandfather's name, Wasserman. Um, Casey grew up with a ton of money, um, a ton of influence. Um, obviously, he met Eric Garcetti. Um, they both went to a private school called Harvard Westlake. Um, <clears throat> Casey Wasserman's, um, I believe it's his father-in-law, and, I'm, and I get it confused sometimes, but Paul Ziffrin is his wife's either father or uncle i forget um but he was the second in command for the la 84 olympics so casey actually got to run the torch in the 84 games uh you know like alongside oj simpson and all these other characters um so he had really positive memories about the 84 olympics so did eric garcetti who tells stories about how he loved going as a kid with his dad like i said who eventually became the da and was maybe going to be the mayor had you know the city not fallen apart in the 90s and so two really rich, um, privileged, powerful kids. Eric Garcetti was, um, you know, he has a lot of weird military and intelligence agency, kind of like Pete Buttigieg and their buddies, um, um, kind of background. He, he, anyway, long story short, he got involved in city politics, worked his way up to city council to president, to mayor. On, and he tells this story very openly, is that on his first day of mayor, being mayor, he wrote a letter to the, um, the then USOC, I believe, before it rebranded following a, you know, a massive a sexual abuse cover-up, um, 
a letter. This was his first act when he was sworn in as mayor was to say, we're going to get the Olympics back. And that was always his number one priority, not, not doing some sort of declaration around homelessness or poverty. Um, so that's, those are the two people behind it. You know, like we say, there's never poor, regular people in cities are never part of the coalition that invite Olympics and create Olympics. It's, it is always real estate interest. It is always private security interest. So LA's um, bidding team at the LA 24 team is all of Casey Wasserman's rich friends. You know, Casey Wasserman runs a sports agency. He's got um, athletes on there. He's got Dr. Dre. He's got Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was also caught yesterday in LA trying to have a secret meeting with a city council member in LA. Um, billionaire behind Quibi um, and DreamWorks. He's got, you know, Rick Caruso, another LA billionaire who, who developed the Americana in the Grove, if you've ever heard of those places. And he's just a Republican who used to be on the police commission. His dad was like a car salesman. He's just, it's just some of the most reactionary people you can imagine and some of the richest people. Um, and so those are always who's driving that because that's where the real profit is. On the Eric Garcetti side, there's like the, the soft political power that you get from this. You might, you might not ever see a literal dime from this, but he'll like use the Olympic um, bidding account. You know, when Casey Wasserman started the bid, he's, he told this story about how like within a week, he just called up a few friends and raised $60 million and said, you know, he's so proud of how, how this is going to be privately financed. You know, we've broken down how much like public housing that could, that could, that could pay for. So that was, that sent Eric Garcetti around the world and certain city council members for several years to Lima, Peru, to Switzerland, um, all on, quote, the private dime. But even then, they were taking, these are people whose job it is to do stuff in LA, right, and handle all these crises. So you can't take back the years of staffing hours. But also, I should add that LAPD was doing security when they were going around the world for years. Um, so like, literally, LA is paying for that trip in part it's never actually privately financed they find a way to tax us on for their their stupid you know vacations yeah and like one of the things that that has always struck me about this bid in particular is it seems that we're there was once a time where many cities would bid for the olympics um and then we started to hear these rumblings of issues where you know places, local communities, governments weren't getting the the benefits that they kind of pitched to their community out of the Olympics. And we started to see dwindling um, interest in hosting the games. And this particular games in LA seemed to be just like, a, okay, LA is the only one um, willing to take on this this harm and exploitation and all of these things that we've talked about. So so you we've awarded it to you in Paris. You'll take the 2024, and they've already announced uh, 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 an opponentless 3032 or 2032 games in in Brisbane. It's it seems to be that only certain places are willing to put their communities through this harm. And it sounds like from what you're saying, this is, uh, this is coming from the top. It's coming from, um, real estate and like powerful people, powerful individuals, powerful governors who are able to convince their local communities that, um, that this is good for them to essentially gaslight them, I think, into accepting um, these these bids. Could you t talk a little bit about what that sort of dwindling interest from a, a, um, a sort of pitching level means or, or what that signifies for you as someone 
against the Olympics in general? Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's really weird because so much of our bid was, you know, kind of in the shadow of like LA 84 being perceived as a success because it quote made money. And we have like a lot of problems with that because A, the public never got to touch that money, went to a nonprofit that has all this money wrapped up in Blackstone and Goldman Sachs and isn't like public money. So, but we still kind of don't even like to kind of get in that kind of, uh, into that kind of debate or framework. But most cities, I think, are looking at these things and a lot of the discourse is around the budget, right? And, and like, will these things make money? And that's one, always been one of their selling points or, or still is in LA and it's that it's going to make money. But most cities are, are, even if they're corrupt to a certain degree or have their issues like every city does um, to an extent, um, most cities have been smart enough or there's been enough backlash publicly or enough kind of democratic input, whether it's referendums, because a lot of cities had that. Like I think the referendum success rate in the last 10 years has been like 80 something, 90 something percent. People like if you give people a democratic input, they overwhelmingly choose not to. We've, we've studied it and other people have studied it that the, if you give people information on the risks of the Olympics, support drops in half, you know, from your like 60, 70 to like 30, whatever, a minority, and then it loses. And um, the problem is, is that for some cities like LA, I would argue is that we are so fundamentally in a bad shape democratically that um, that's why it got through. And any, any reasonable city, even if they were so captured by capital that they would go through this process and still want to do it, any reasonable city would have negotiated a taxpayer guarantee like they did in 84. We, LA is on the hook for any and all overages, the same way Japan has been. Like that, most countries and cities realize that is ridiculous and that the IOC has so few cities to choose from that that is leverage. You know, that's what LA, that's what LA City Council, we had, a, we, we talked to Zevier Oslovsky, the old city council member recently on a radio show about how even the city in 84 was even wise enough to do that. Um, but they don't even have that going for them. So it's been really, the whole pro process is obviously like ridiculously undemocratic on a local level. If it happens, if it gets to that point, you know, we don't really have like a local media ecosystem that's very, even relative to other American cities, I think is really, really poor in poor, poor shape. And those publications are very literal, literal partners with the IOC and LA, you know, Olympic interests. So, um, and there was no polling I should mention too. Um, most cities have some sort of polling, whether it's academic institutions or media institutions that, that think it's in the public good to know if this giant mega event that could totally change the landscape on everything, if people wanted it or not. LA didn't. No, no, there was not a single independent poll. There was one poll done by LMU um, by a professor who is literally an in 2017, four years ago, a registered lobbyist for sandstone developers that has four Olympic hotels in development. He's the head of a program. Yeah, he's and the press wouldn't report on this, even though it's like registered on the city ethics website. Um, so for years, they were saying, oh, LA, he ran a poll in his institute called Study LA, which was kind of born in the ashes after like the 92 uprising of all things. And he's a really dubious character that um, also sits on the board of like a APCC and or at the time did too and has a lot of media interests and it's a very very small world when it comes and you know USC and UCLA are largely captured by like by by Olympic capital so um that's a real shame so in 2018 we actually did our own polling if you go to nolympicsla.com survey you can see kind of what I was talking about earlier is more of an educational tool to show what happens when you give the public information um 
And, you know, we find ourselves always just doing, and I'm sure this is what most organizers feel like, like doing the work that isn't being done by the institutions that are supposed to do them. And so whether that's kind of pushing hard in the media, um, giving the local media a hard time when they're not doing their job, um, doing polling market research, doing door knocking, doing all sorts of kind of uh, that type of work. So that's been, that was a lot of our work in 2018 and kind of expanding the international profile. But yeah, uh, to, to your earlier question, like, I don't know. I think, I think the IOC does have like a problem, but the, but, but the solution is always just finding one city every couple of years that is like compromised enough. And that's like, even if 99.9% .9 of all the other cities like get it at this point, and that's the struggle. If they just need, they just need every Olympics, it's like a fix. It's like, if they get that next thing, then like they can keep going. But if you can stop one of these, um, I think you really do have a chance of upsetting the whole system, especially as the decade goes on and maybe things economically get more unstable in general. Yeah, thank you. So just a few kind of things that you mentioned that I wanted to kind of dive into more is, is one in terms of um, when you mentioned kind of the professor's implication, all this just really highlights the the unethical aspect of academia where like, you know, the 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 kind of public narrative about academia is that we're so far left and that we indoctrinate everybody when really there are a lot of professors who are who do really, really unethical and harmful things. And so I think your example is a really good one. Um, the other thing I was going to mention is, is when you're talking about the links between or the, the fact that these organizers claim that they're going to be doing this bid and everything using private funds, when in reality they are relying very heavily on publicly funded um, sort of institutions and people and taxpaying dollars. And, and I think this is really important to highlight. And something that we've talked about in the past is this issue of like the state private network. Um, and I'm going to kind of bring some historical context to this for a second in that one of my friends, Toby Ryder, wrote this really great book that I always cite called Cold War Games about how um, this, the, the government developed these state private networks in the 1950s during the Cold War as a way to fight the Cold War but kind of still present this um, this image that we are fighting the Cold War through private means and not through like state funded government means because government means is equivalent to communism and we want to present that we are not communists when actually we have a lot of sort of um, federal government uh, funding and mandates and stuff. And so anyways, this is a long way winded way of saying that kind of what you are highlighting that happened in LA is something that has this really long historical precedent of people claiming to doing things through sort of individual initiative and sort of private funds, and that is absolutely part of it, but that it is absolutely corrupt precisely because it is relying on federal funding or state funding and government funding and relying on people that whose salaries are paid for by tax by taxpayers um, but that is it is hidden at least to a certain extent until you start to sort of scratch beneath the surface. So I'm really really glad that you walked us through that. I one I had a question um, that you could you're probably the best person to answer, which is how much taxpayer money are we actually talking about here for LA? Like that's a general question. And then like I, a, a comment that I was just like thinking about is essentially what I see happening is like the IOC is going to cities that have hosted the games in the past to see which one is willing to gaslight their local community um, to support the games. 
Like which one is like basically to make everyone think that this great, amazing thing is going to come. Um, but everyone knows it's insidious and it's dubious and it's not actually bringing that. So who's willing to do that? And it seems like LA is willing, <laughs> is a city willing to take on that labor. Yeah. And also um, another example of that and how the timeline is kind of changing out of desperation is Vancouver. So Vancouver just hosted in 2010 and they're on the chopping block for 2030. We just, we've been talking to folks, you know, tenant organizers and academics and so forth from Vancouver who fought that bid and understand very intimately how, how bad it was and, and are still living in that kind of wave of Olympic related gentrification because it's only been a decade. Um, and, but yeah, I think they're going back to being like, well, we can, the, the venues are new enough that we can reuse them, right? Like we can, we can do a low, we can do a low lift Olympics, right? It'll be sustainable because we've already, because the harm, is, and they're not saying that part, but the harm has already been done by that development, right? But, which is not necessarily true. Um, and, and we, you know, with the future, with the cost of the Olympics, you know, if you, I, you know, SEO kind of results make me mad, obviously, <laughs> like, because like if you Google Garcetti Olympics or like the LA 28 Olympics, I think still to this day, the first thing that comes up is like, Eric Garcetti's claim that LA is going to make a billion dollars with a B from this Olympics. Um, it's that financially low risk. And that's just like, this was said a few years ago with someone who's, like I said, going to be working somewhere else within a matter of months in a different country, a different continent, um, who has no skin in the game. Um, they, Casey Wasserman can say it's privately financed. Yes, the 60 million that you raised from your buddy Yes, that was privately financed, but I've already outlined there's so many other ways which the public trust has been used for six, five, six years, seven years now already um, that will never get back. But when, it, when if you really want to break it down, like what we're looking as far as risk is. Uh, so we know that all Olympics go over budget, right? It's just a question of how over budget they go. And there's so many factors. And that's why Olympics usually are in the past or, or worded out seven to eight years in advance, because that's enough time to build the hotels and get the policing and surveillance policy that you need in place. Um, but like 11 years, 12 years is just, it just doesn't make any sense because so much can happen. And we have so little idea once you factor in climate and all these other things, like we really, I have, I have no idea even in seven years, what, what, what things will look like. So it's just a very bold thing to kind of say that anything is like low risk, but so when, and if it goes over, it's, the first 270 million will be LA city tax that will come out of those taxes, uh, those coffers from 270 to 540 million. That's going to be on the state of California. So if you live in, you know, anywhere else in California, you'll, you'll be literally paying for our Olympics. Um, and then after, uh, 540 and up forever, it's up back on LA taxpayer. So if it's $20 billion over budget, like in Tokyo, um, then that's all on, that could destroy a local economy, like a national economy, like $20 billion is so much, but that can literally destroy a local economy. And those numbers, those overages in Tokyo were before COVID, you know, like we're not talking about like COVID related stuff. So many things can go wrong. Our infrastructure in LA, not just the sports arena stuff is so old and falling apart, earthquake, fire, any ecological event. Like, and the thing is, there's nothing binding them to that. They're saying 80% is pre-existing like structures and 20% is temporary. That 20% is going to be poured concrete. And there's nothing, you know, like these aren't like bleachers they're going to like bring out for the day. Like these are actual buildings that are like environmentally super, super wasteful. So it's like we will, and there's nothing holding, they can build as much as they want and they can just keep taxing us. 
There's nothing to stop. There are, there are no quote guardrails in place at all. And there's a games agreement around the corner in October that the city is supposedly going to sign and present to us probably 48 hours before they vote on it that no one has seen. And that will outline a lot of how this infrastructure will be leveraged. And if it's judging by LA's previous history and negotiation, which is terrible, like we're really opening ourselves up to so many liabilities. Like the right wing understands that in LA and like even some of the centrists are starting to come around that like this is wildly uh, high risk. And even for like the transit people, a lot of it was sold as like, oh, you'll get, you know, good transit like you do in every other city, which becomes a joke. It's like they overpromised about what the transit expansion we're going to get is. So what we're going to get is an underfunded project. And so we're going to have to reprioritize all these 28 different projects they want. And what's going to move up to the top of the list? Obviously, the, the, the infrastructure connecting the airport to the tourist zones not the transit corridor where poor people need it and where they need their bus lanes extended, not these necessarily these giant like rail projects, but it's a mess. And it's in, I guess the good news is, is I think people are in the last year and a half have really become aware of that locally and more people have become kind of engaged in knowing who their council member is and like giving a shit about some of this stuff. I want to dig in a little bit, a little bit more to Casey Wasserman, if, if you don't mind, who sure. for our listeners, if you don't know, is the chairman of the LA uh, 28 games we've talked about um, already. Um, and, and like in preparation for this, uh, for this podcast, like, to be honest, I didn't know much about Casey Wasserman. So I, I Googled and one of the first thing that came for me, one of the first things that came up um, was that uh, this New York magazine piece where Casey Wasserman was, um, it suggests that Casey Wasserman was a guest on Jeffrey Epstein's private jet that was also flying Bill Clinton, Kevin Spacey, and others to Africa to do some work, which, to be honest, was horrifying for me, just to read that in and of itself. What do we know about Casey Wasserman generally? Um, how did he get this gig? It, it doesn't sound, it doesn't seem like he's very... Um, he, he's he has expertise in Olympics other than maybe being there once um, because he was a privileged um, child and and how specifically has he put vulnerable folks at risk of harm associated with these games? Sure, yeah, great question. Yeah, it's something we take for granted because we've known about the Jeffrey Epstein connection for a while, and it's not just once he's been he's been on the Epstein plane multiple times. We've seen the flight manifests and like. And it's so funny because in LA media, when that this is written about, is that I think that trip to Africa with Bill Clinton and Chris Tucker and everyone was very famous, or is, is like talked about a lot. Casey was on that. It's, New York media is the only people who's ever like reporting on that, and I don't think that's like a coincidence. Um, we, there's some new reporting coming out soon for a national publication um, that has recently relaunched. Uh, about Casey that goes into much further detail than I can get into right now, but um i mean casey's money is everywhere all the bat like it's really you know deeply tied to the clinton foundation um he's donated to all sides you know politically although he's like much more these days like think you know coded as a like a liberal democrat um but he's you know he has tight connections with uh glenn dubin i don't know if anyone knows who that is uh steve bing who also is part of that epstein crew who committed suicide recently um roger goodell um you know these other kind of sports that uh he was just at robert Kraft's birthday a week ago after he got back from tokyo um so he's always just been around money but it took him a while to really hit his stride in the 2000s he he 
owned some LA like arena football team that's only noteworthy because someone like died during a game or something like that. Like he really kind of got a lot of chances, like a lot of super rich people. It kind of his trajectory almost reminded me of George W. Bush of like he was really screwing around for a while. It wasn't until this last decade where his sports agency got really serious. So he has Wasserman Sports Agency. He just bought Paradigm's music department. So he has a music arm now. He's got a um he's got a lot he's got it's um, I mean He's got a PR company called Laundry Service that he's famously gotten a fight with Papa John about because he's been trying to extort Papa John. Um, it's like it's it's wild when you're in like a situation with Papa John and you are actually uh, in Papa John's like the better person. Um, he's his money's everywhere. Like I said, real estate holdings. He tried to sell his house at the beginning of COVID for I think listed for 125 million, which was like the most famous the biggest, you know, like during a pandemic and economic crisis, he ended up selling it to like 68 million to his friend, David Geffen. Um, he's deeply, deeply plugged into this like deep capital world. But like, I would say most people in LA probably don't know who he is. Um, and that's kind of the problem. I think we've done a good job of helping elevate Eric Garcetti's name because before a few years ago, he was really there's polling that shows that Eric Garcetti, most people in LA didn't know who he was the way that like the Blasio is a bigger public figure. Like, all these guys got by on like flying really low under the radar, even though they have a lot of money and like a big profile. So Casey's money is like literally everywhere in LA. He's got like, he's given millions of dollars to the LA police foundation. They've taken that off their website because we posted about it too much. Um, and this is a liberal Democrat, you know, like in the wake of Ferguson buying all these body cams for LAPD, trying to do something that's like giving to the police, but looks woke. And that's probably, that's kind of like Casey's whole MO. Um, like I said, he has weird, like dubious media interests that he hasn't fully disclosed. Um, he even used those media interests to, to promote like LA 28 during the bid cycle, which is like a conflict of interest on so many levels and probably like FTT violations. But, um, he's mostly like stayed out of trouble, but I think that's hopefully going to change because I think people in LA do care and do care where things are coming from now and source from now. He's also like Megan Rapinoe's agent, which is like, is really funny he's like helping he's like profiting off the fact that you know she's selling like oh legal weed to people when other olympic athletes are like getting like crucified for that so it's like he's just he's trying he's just trying to he's so vertically integrated with everything that he just every time there's an olympic contract he's going to find a way to profit multiple multiple times even though he's going to claim like in that example earlier the la times was like oh when casey paid his own media company a million dollars out of that 60 million Oh, he stepped out of the room for that conversation naturally. And we're like, okay. And that's how the press has been reporting this whole thing. It's just literally like reprinting their press releases and taking their word for it at every, you know, like they do with police in general, like around America. That's kind of what's up. Yeah, people are afraid to challenge him. And we, um, I was kicked off of city council. This is about two years ago. It was before we went to Tokyo in 2019. And it was right when the Epstein stuff was resurfacing again. And Casey, they don't, there are very, very few meetings in LA City Council about the LA Olympic bid to this day. There'll be maybe two or three a year, maybe, maybe in some cases less. And one of them was about youth sports allocation of money at City Hall. And Casey actually showed up. We were shocked. And so me and one of our members who actually went to the same school as Casey just sat right next to him and, and read him the riot act about his relationships because it was about youth sports. We're like, how dare you come up here and talk about youth sports? when you were on the Epstein plane and you're covering for the Olympics and the, the, the Nasser survivors the year before had called out LA 28 and Casey Wasserman and said, Hey, 
stop LA 28 until we can like fix the abuse problem. And they just kind of scoffed. And so I was kicked off count uh, off comment. We have video of it somewhere because it was like, quote, off topic. But that was two and a half, two years and change ago. And he I, I guarantee you, I think he will not show up in a situation like that again. I don't think he's ever been uh, talked to that way in his life. But I think he will have to have as COVID as we reopen or whatever. And um, at some point, LA 28 is going to have to have like public events. They've had none. You know how you had this big public watch party in Paris that some of our comrades over there disrupted and I think got pain for? There was nothing like that in L.A. this whole time. There hasn't been anything public since the day it was awarded literally four years ago today. There was a party at that. There was a party on the on the steps of City Hall that we couldn't get into. But some of our friends, some of our allies broke into. We stood outside. Maybe about 15 of us stayed to like protest. And they had a big full PA and we drowned out that whole party. And like you'll never hear audio from that. Like all the dignitaries like Carl Lewis and your Greg Luganuses were there. And you'll see photos from it, but you'll never hear audio. And that's kind of been our attitude. And that was four years ago. That was the last time they held like a public event. And now I wouldn't even call that a public event because it wasn't open to the public, even though it was on public property. So and they know that. And that's the IOC came here quote, a couple of years ago. They didn't send a full delegation. They sent one person to do one photo op in an empty stadium. This was before COVID. Um, they didn't do they because they just know that we'll disrupt them. and. I guess the only other meeting they've had is when Trump came to town in early 20, 2020, right before the pandemic. But again, that wasn't a that wasn't a public event that we could have that had, you know, secret security out the, you know, but there's there's no in no way four years ago, did they ever engage meaningfully with the public that would be affected? Um, so this is kind of like, I don't know, really know what they'd, they'd expect, but. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a little bit of a change. Like we just saw, we just saw in, in Tokyo, like right before the opening ceremonies, that was the first time I've seen like protest footage. I, like I'm in Canada, we have a state run media CBC. And that was like the first time I've seen them playing footage of protesting the Olympics next to opening ceremonies. Like I, it, it, they were actually in the same screen, which I found shocking as someone who's like seen some of these things. And, and maybe that sort of percolating mobilization is kind of what these folks are scared of facing. Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, LA is a weird place where I think you can, you know, kind of get away with that. If you're a rich person, it's an easier place to hide. Um, a very spread spread out sprawling place we're in our cars all the time all those cliches but it's true it's like you know jeffrey like i said jeffrey katzenberg tried to slip into city hall yesterday and a reporter that we know uh caught him in the hallway <laughs> and was like what are you doing and they were just like i don't know um they're, they're trying to get but like at a certain point there's like a physical reality there's a certain amount of people and i think it's still growing that are like very unhappy with this and don't feel like there was any process and they and I don't think they've accounted for that and and it's just going to be yeah it's going to be it's going to be like an like the only time they'll come out is to do kind of youth sports related stuff but that's never even like usually the big committee themselves and these things aren't open to the public and and that's a contradiction that I think will continue to kind of manifest itself physically and 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 the and I think a lot of it will come out through this next election cycle um, there, there will be multiple election cycles at, on the city level before 2028, and this next one's going to be supremely contentious. And a lot of people are looking at this bid, looking at the city council members who have an obscene amount of power, 
as the incumbent generation of being like, well, this is this represents all the reasons, all the pro-developer, pro-police kind of politics of that generation, and we want you out. So I think we're we're going to see a few seats, some very important seats, including the head of the LA ad hoc committee, Mitch O'Farrell, who's the scumbag who's been clearing up Echo Park Lake and all these other things. He's if he's gone, and a couple of the other the key boosters on a county level are gone, the mayor's gone. Like who's defending it on a on a public level it, as it becomes less and less popular? That's a really interesting question that I don't think anyone has answered. So I, I think we can see that politicized. Like we saw this in Rome. Rome was one of the 2024 bidding um, cities, and it so happened that um, a mayoral election happened during the bidding cycle, and the, one of the insurgents ran on, like, this is bad and corrupt, and how, da we, how dare you put Rome on the hook for this? And that person won, and they kicked the bid out. Um, it's obviously a lot easier to do that in the bidding cycle than after the host city contract has been signed, but it's hard to say. At the same time, too, we could have a former LA police officer who's running for mayor, who's also a big Olympic fan, be our mayor next year. We could have like a worse mayor in place too. So it, it could swing either way, the doors being open, but it um, it could be the 80s all over again here real soon and it arguably kind of already is. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, before I move on to the next question, one thing that you mentioned is kind of like the virtual, uh, Wasserman's sort of vertical, vertical, if I can say the right, integration, sort of how he is involved in so many things. And obviously, whether that's the intention or not, that serves to effectively silence all these people who maybe might be willing to kind of be vocal and, and speak out in these sorts of things because they themselves might might be implicated, right? That's part of the purpose of doing these things. Um, so, and, and just, I think your explanation is sort of how involved he is with everything, kind of his ties to Megan Rapinoe and all these other people, right? I mean, it sort of helps to create like a protective shield, which of course just ends up hurting a lot of people, which goes into the next question, which is about um, how the Olympics accelerate displacement, securitization, and the erosion of human rights and democracy worldwide. Now, could you speak to how the Olympics do accelerate these harmful trends and sort of how that approach draws you to your position, which is to stop the 2028 Olympic Games? Sure, sure. And I apologize to all the Megan Rapinoe fans out there for not, I, I'm, I'm really bad with pronouncing names, so hopefully, um, hopefully you'll be merciful to me. Um, but yeah, so as far as like the the real social costs, right? Like though that's what we like the real kind of core of our argument is is you know it looks different in different cities as kind of things evolve. But um, you know classically we've seen a lot of stadium and other development um, attached to Olympics causing direct displacement and indirect displacement. And those there's so many different forms of how those can shake out. Sometimes it's literally raising you know like they did for Dodger Stadium or killing a public housing project and putting a big uh, arena there uh, in its place. But in general, regardless of, kind of how it happens, um, you know, we've got the most expensive stadium in the world that just opened in LA, SoFi, built by the same people that built the Tokyo Olympic uh, arena, obviously, of course. And so what that's doing in Inglewood, where we work with the Linux Inglewood Tennis Union and a lot of other folks on the ground there, and what that's leading to is all sorts of things you can measure and a lot of things you can't, but, you know, rising rents, speculative real estate deals around the stadium. Because a lot of people were like, well, that used to be a horse that, you know, part of that used to be a parking lot and that used to be a sports center before that. So you're not actually taking housing off the market. And like, that is such a simplistic, narrow view of what displacement is. And it shows how I think little, how, how little the average person, especially a sports fan, who's kind of sometimes weighing in on this, like 
understands about that and, and, and how much work we have to do to educate people. But there's so many different ways that can happen. Um, you know, uh, we, we have one case, so there's a tenant down by, uh, like li literally lives in an apartment building right across from SoFi Stadium. And, you know, they're trying to rebrand it to be like something with, I forget what the name of it is, something like stadium related. Uh, they're harassing an old uh, monolingual Spanish speaker lady, um, landlord is, is finding different ways to like not, to go out of their way to aggressively harass them, not do stuff for them. And it's very clearly as that building is being made over, they're, they're clearly wanting to remove all these low income tenants who've been there for a while. And that's just happening all over Lennox and Inglewood. And, you know, part of our argument too, just to be clear, is that like the Olympics do not create gentrification from scratch, right? Like these mm -hmm. forces already exist in every city already. Um, it just really opens the door wide open. Um, so the debatable whether the SoFi Stadium is quote for the Olympics or not, we believe that that deal was always hand in hand with the Olympics. Um, and, yeah. and it was very heavily, they, they both leveraged it each way. But even if it wasn't, we're going to see, and because that's what the, like, even if we took the bid for their word that they aren't going to build any big stadiums in LA, we're seeing so much hotel speculation. We're seeing so much yeah. air, like rampant yeah. Airbnb abuse. And Airbnb is a, now a global partner with the Olympics. So we're going to see, you know, Airbnb is already a problem in LA. We work on these issues, but there were some good regulations that were put in a couple of years that aren't being enforced, unfortunately. And the fact that Airbnb is now partners with the Olympics is going to make new loopholes open up, we, we were afraid of, and um, new incentives for landlords to drive out their tenants and turn it into an Airbnb or to raise the whole building. There's this thing called the Ellis Act, which luckily has been suspended during most of COVID, I believe, I think since the beginning, which, in, which is a California law that says that a landlord can kick out all the tenants at any point if they want to change the nature of the building. So if I want to get in the hotel, get out of the landlord business and yeah. get in the hotel business, I can kick out rent stabilized tenants. And we've, we've seen that happen down by USC already. Um, yeah. For this Olympics, uh, in one of the memorandums, it said we're going to have a ho hotel shortage crisis for 2028. So they kicked out, I think, eight buildings full of uh, multi generational families. You have to give them some cash, but that cash is going to be gone uh, real soon, and a community is destroyed that can never move back there as 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 they make way for more hotels and luxury condos around these pre existing stadiums. So that's a big focus of our, our work in the Homestead mm -hmm. Hotels campaign. Um, when these hotels get built, when these arenas get built, when these condos get upgraded, when they put a flipper fence on a building around arena, what also comes with that is a heightened incentive to disappear poverty, to disappear the poor people that are maybe, and you know, as eviction dries, so does homelessness. LA County has at least 66,000 unhoused people right now, the size of a lot of cities um, themselves. That number will almost certainly increase over the next year as the eviction moratorium expires. And so we're talking about massive amounts of encampments, which they're already trying to make illegal sitting, sleeping, doing anything on the street in LA. So mm -hmm. we're seeing more homelessness, more incentive to, to disappear homelessness, which obviously means more private security, like bids, like business improvement yeah. districts, more like more of those will be applied for and, and created in like the next decade, I'm sure, or they'll try to uh, more private security and more police, more hiring of police and, mm -hmm. and more incentive for police to you know, complaint, we have a completely complaint driven system here. So the richer the tenants that move in, the more the complaints go up, the more police violence, the more police killings, the more arrests, the yeah. more impetus to build more jails, you know, the more reason yeah. to build more jails, like we've seen in a lot of Olympic cities, we've, we've talked to folks in Atlanta that are still fighting a jail, 
jail-related projects tied to the 96 game. Um, but those are the main core things. And the other thing to mention, too, is when, you know, they're, all these Olympic bids say, oh, these are going to be great for jobs, you know, we'll build, build, build. But they can't say the build, build, build part that loud anymore, even though they know that we're going to be building all these hotels. But the problem is, even for the labor unions, and, you know, that's a big, a big issue of ours, is that labor has sided on the, the side of the Olympics since, like, kind of the 80s, at least. Like, labor used to be yeah. the, the front of the resistance to the Olympics um, back with the Workers' Olympiad and so forth. And they've really kind of, in LA, for example, like the LA County Fed said, no, we're part of the Olympic project. So that's really uh, disheartening. But we we see those kind of disconnects all the time from the tenants movement to the labor side of things or abolition. So um, we're hoping that people that are involved in labor are really going to wake up to the fact that their workers, even if they're unionized, are going to be exploited to shit for the Olympics. And their their giant contracts that might come up in the years advance of that, if they think they're going to have leverage with those contracts, they're wrong. They're if the opposite is going to happen, the bigger brands can come in at any time. Airbnb can come in at any time and undermine yeah. the hotel lobby if they want to now, like they're doing in Paris. Like it's a lot more complicated. Things are a lot more fluid, but that's kind of those are, and you know, we obviously see the athletes get exploited themselves on the field, but we see, you know, all forms of, and especially an ununionized work around LA. And um, as, as the games come, so does all this just, massive exploitation and we're not talking about like the kind of sex trafficking and that kind of whole side of things because that's kind of dubious but we're talking about just regular whatever i mean sex workers themselves are probably at heightened risk but like there's, there's some myths that come around these mega events that i don't we don't really personally buy into but um teachers you know regular people people street vendors obviously mm -hmm. it's a big one mm -hmm. it's a really contentious issue in la right now because yeah. a big a big public market close to me just got shut down because of complaints even though it's just like one of the very cool open air things that still exist and that is public that still existed in LA. So street vendors um, are also at the front lines for getting exploited, chased out, yeah, having yeah. immigration officials called on them. You know, we didn't get into the, I haven't really mentioned the fact that this is what's called a national special security event, which yeah. will give DHS kind of the keys to the city to work with ICE, uh, to work with uh, the sheriffs, to work with LAPD. And that's a whole nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we on this show are, are unapologetically pro labor. And I think you've, you've, you've raised so much there um, to talk about. I don't want to get, I don't want the labor um, perspective that you're offering here to be lost in my question, because my question is more focused on the militarization of the Olympics, which I view full disclosure. I'm i I'm a criminologist. So I view this as one of the most harmful things in society in general. And I think these mega events are the hallmark case of what goes wrong when you hyper-militarize um, events and how those trickle into everyday life. And I think we've seen this disturbing trend in mega events um, over the past 20-ish years to treat the Olympic games as these sterile zones of safety and to fund massive security projects, um, that now cost upwards of a billion dollars just in security alone, as is, um, rumored, uh, in Vancouver, London and Rio, all security costs were all pegged at around a million dollars. And this militarization is absolutely unmistakably 
targeted at already already vulnerable groups. Um, youths, homeless and home insecure, racialized folks, those suffering from substance and alcohol use and abuse, and a variety of, of different things that um, are surrounding those issues. Um, for instance, in Canada in, in 2010, we saw the integrate this, the emergence of this integrated security unit that put together like over 16,000 police, military, and I think the most harmful aspect, a massive amount of private security personnel that you've um, talked about. So I could rant on all of these things all day. The, those integrated security units are now used or were used in, in uh, 2018, the G, um, or in, in um, 2012, sorry, the G8 and the G20 summits in Toronto. They were used in the 2018 G7 summit in Quebec, and they're being planned for subsequent Olympic um, Games bids. They're becoming part of everyday life. They're becoming the norm. And I could rail on this all day, but I'd like to get your take on how this militarization actually um, is intended in some ways to deepen the structural issues that cause the variety of social problems that we've talked about and, and actually functions perfectly as it's supposed to when it does. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's all about, you know, social control and like the Olympics gives people in power the kind of this, the, the, the ability to create this state of exception where they get to do what they've been wanting to do the whole time. So in the case of the police or, you know, like the interest driving the police, which is like this, you know, this, this marriage between real estate interests and police, both private and public in LA, at least, uh, like those are really the people that run our city. And obviously there's overlap with like media interests and tech interests and all those other kind of things in LA. And, um, but it, those are the people who are already kind of running our cities, but realize that there are at least some kind of roadblocks in what they want to do. Like a big one in LA, in California is this called CEQA. It's a, um, it's a, it's a building regulation regulatory process. And, you know, the Olympics, in, in California, they've, they've negotiated so that the Olympics can sidestep that, like literally. And so it's just like, that's how everything works. So it's like, you know, it's, it, it, it is that, that to us, that is the point of the Olympics that might not have been, um, that might've evolved to really kind of become the forefront. But like, I, I, to us, the Olympics have kind of evolved along with capital. So it's like by the seventies, eighties, what the Olympics were, even though we, we'd argued there are a lot of harms that predate that, of course, because of what it's founded on is, is rotten too. But like what it has become is just so such a reflection of like what global capital is doing to everyone in every city and removing indigenous people, poor people and making all these cities, right. The, the global, the clean global city that is amenable to like capital. That's all like to us. That's really all this is about. It could be anything if like sports went out of style. Like I said, like it, they could pivot to video games, which they flirt with all the time. It could be something like it could be chef, you know, it could be like it would be like the art, you know, like they could make it whatever they want. Like no disrespect to the athletes. What they do is totally valid. But like this is a this is what it is today is that maybe some of the people that are involved in the IOC have some sort of like broader, loftier notions. I, I kind of sincerely doubt that. But um, it, at this point, if you're if you're involved with that group, but it it's. Oh, it's always been like these aren't accidents right like the people getting displaced or whatever like that is the point the social cleansing is the point any mayor and the city council and the bid committee that is getting together and spending years to put together this project 
that's what they do when they build these like these bid books where they show you the city they're trying to build. They don't hide it. There are no poor people in those photos. There are no people of color. There are no like, there are no, uh, I don't know. And just even, even though the reality is, is that like, it looks nothing, you know, like our city is not accessible today. It doesn't, it's it already very hostile to these people. And so it's, it's not, um, in some ways it's nothing new, but it's, and, and the offer is always, well, you get to have a, you'll get to go to a sporting event or you'll get to, you'll get to, that's what you get. You get to feel good. Hey, and it's always, they're throwing children in front of you. It's like, do you want to take away this hypothetical experience from a, hypothetical child that doesn't exist yet in seven years of like like what are we talking about what about what about building like what about having a school system that isn't falling apart or what about like having any plan for climate collapse and like the awful like the air was black this time last year and it probably will be in a few weeks here as well like we're so ill-equipped as a city but and that's what really is so frustrating on a personal level it's just you feel like you're going insane because you're like is once once you take once you stop and like look outside of the NBC or mainstream coverage of these things at any of this stuff, it's pretty clear it's bad. Unless you are a millionaire, yeah. you're not gonna you're not yeah. gonna get anything out of this. And if it's anything, one of our big this is one of our big like challenges as critics of of sport in general on the show. It's like sport isn't this like always positive, like always amazing thing. But you know what? There's a lot of structural issues that we can get at if we just stop watching NBC and ESPN for like five minutes and and realize the damage that sport can do to society. Not to mention the whole. I think Johnny, what you're bringing up this whole like mythic child that these mythic children and what they might like to see and what they might be able to experience in terms of having like you know a totally happy childhood when it totally is ignoring and purposely veiling the real health risks that are actually preventing children from being able to have the healthy ch childhoods that they need so you know it's pulling on all of that rhetoric so I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up yeah, and I think I think the year we were founded it was either 2017 or 2018. I think um, a report came out that one in five kids in LA and the LA USD public school system had experienced homelessness that year. You know, it's like that's that's what we want, and we know that the Olympics will only make it harder for people to stay in their homes because we know that there will be laws that say you can't sleep in your car, you can't sleep on the street. So it's like, what are we saying? And like the whole point of us is to get the conversation out there because I think once it's fully out in the open, I think. Even a city is like quote like self interested and, and and thinks of itself so exceptionally as LA, I think we'll start to, and just with the material realities continuing to probably you know get worse over the next couple of years, I think people will, will will see this for what it is. Hopefully one day. And you know back to the point about the you know it's like I I you know we are pro or personally I'm like you know like pro labor movement, but obviously like there's so many of these kind of um, contradictions that need to get worked out and haven't been worked out locally because it's like what point is helping build one of these new temporary structures if you're like displacing your own, or if you're making, if you're driving up the rent in that area so that you are displacing yourself for the working class. Like, you know, like, to, me, to me, the working class is who is up on the, they're, they're the ones with the big target on their back. So it's, 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 hard, it's, it's hard to see, like anyone like working to kind of do your own oppression at a certain point, you know, or your own vanish, or you're a part of the, the project that is your own banishment in any cases. And so that's something that is like, you know, LA, LA is a weird kind of scene and has its own kind of particular history with, with these issues. But um, I'm hoping the Olympics, because it's so intersectional, will help force some of these things that I think people have been like, you know, issues that sometimes don't get confronted between kind of issues or groups and parts of the left and so on. 
Well, absolutely. And so to continue with this line of thought, you know, you've been you've been really d- detailing for us the, the massive income inequality that causes, you know, food and housing insecurity, not to mention drug use and mental health issues, houselessness, as you've talked about, and, and is really also continues to weaken already weakened infrastructure, public transit um, issues, and all these things. And so where could this funding that's being thrown at the Olympic Games, where could this funding be put that would actually help address some of these enormous issues? Yeah, great question. It's something we, we try to think about a lot. And it's kind of this kind of work that I think organizers do in general around here is like, you know, especially with the conversations last year around policing, it's like looking how much we spend on policing versus all these other services, whether it's housing, whether it's education, whether it's infrastructure. Um, so, like I said, the, the the LA budget is on paper still fictional, whatever, but six point nine billion dollars. To put that in perspective, a few years ago, LA LA voters approved this like historic set of um, it's called Measure H and Triple H of this 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 project for um, it's a decade long project where they would you know raise these extra taxes to build all this. Um, public housing and permanent supportive housing and so on. Um, we're a few years into it. It's way over budget, way behind. It's awful, you know, like an awful project, but for a decade, and this was, this was at the time was relatively, yeah, like we hadn't done anything close to this. Over a decade, the amount of money they were going to raise for this project was $1.2 billion, I believe. So we're talking about like a seventh of what the Olympic budget is. Um, so obviously we talk a lot about public housing. One of the problems is it's so expensive to build in California and LA. And so we've, I've been on part of a lot of research projects related to um, taking, you know, doing the opposite of what the Olympics want to do, which is turn public space into private space and to turn public, private or state owned space into like actually public livable space, whether that's pre-exist, you know, em- em- empty hotels, um, all sorts of other things, and, you know, playing around with different like community land trust models. So there's so much, there's so many possibilities there that you could, LA has so many, so much vacant, unused space of all sorts, residential, commercial, you, like city owned, county owned, state, some Caltrans owned, like state owned land. That's where you've got literally houses sitting in El Sereno empty that people have taken over. Um, all, so on the housing front, it's just, all like to me that, that that's where my head is always like they, like that is always the number because that exacerbates health you know like healthcare issues and like, everything starts there like you can't like it's hard to address anything until we can get like some sort of footing there and we have the resources so that's where I would say like obviously public transit expansion but it's like more for me it's like and from the people I know that understand that world better it's just it's less of a case an issue of resources there is just like using them smartly and like not just being like awful at like thinking about and including poor people in the process of the design of your city like it's like we might not even need more resources for a lot of that but it's like housing security everything really starts there and 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 education and that's like there's no amount of youth sports i think that can make up for the fact that like teachers can't you know don't have the proper class sizes might be in like extra risk because they're going back to school in two weeks like all these other issues that like are really that most people rhetorically like liberals or whoever is like pushing Olympics, like rhetorically address, but like don't in any meaningfully in any meaningful way do that. Um, yeah. And again, it's like just all that money you could take away from the Olympics and the police and put it towards like making our communities more robust, adding more gardens, adding more parks, you know, like, 
stop clamping down on public space, like opening up more public space and finding a way, like getting in front of like what, like water is such a huge issue in LA and like the world as we go, as, as we move forward, it's like maybe just like thinking about that and getting in front of that. Yeah, absolutely. And in this episode, it's so wonderful because it's such a natural building uh, building episode on a conversation we had um, a week ago with Jules Boykoff, whom I'm sure um, you are familiar with, um, Johnny, just like highlighting all of the issues that are not only empathized and created um, um, in this social system, but like they are built uh, or, or they're furthered by a mega events uh, by mega events like the Olympics and others like we, we're seeing in, in Qatar with the uh, FIFA World Cup. There's so many issues that just get completely si- sidetracked and ignored when we talk about the Olympics and, and putting on these events. And I, I want to kind of just switch just a little bit to a recent piece that you um, co-authored um, with, uh, forgive me if, if I've gotten this name wrong, but is it Gia Lape? Gia Lape. Thank you very much for that. Um, but a recent piece that you co-authored in Jacobin, which I, I think put your project um, and the project that's at the core of, of No Olympics LA kind of at the, at the fore. And you both incisively countered a lot of the sort of typical rhetoric of the Olympic Games as being this sort of amazing nation building and communities solidifying event that, you know, everyone benefits from. And you made a strong argument that perhaps the Olympics cannot be reformed at all and all Olympics should be abolished. Could you briefly walk our listeners through this argument and kind of how you arrived at it? I know we've talked about a lot of it um, thus far, but just kind of walk us through the the argument a little bit. No, absolutely. And I think that's crucial because I think most people are like ready to have this argument, right? Like they've, they've, for one reason or another, whether it's how the athletes are treated, whether how communities are treated both, um, there are enough pieces of evidence that they've seen and we're kind of maybe a, more aware of as a culture than we were five or 10 years ago, or I think Rio really did open help open the door for all this stuff, but um, the, the tragedies and how, how naked it was. But so the argument is that you can't reform the Olympics because they are impervious to reform. They can't, there's people have tried, people have tried for all sorts of reasons. It has never once worked in my opinion. Um, they move when they absolutely have to to stay alive um and i i think this this olympics proves that i think this olympics proves that beyond the shadow of a doubt they will do anything to satisfy those contracts and so i think we're yeah and and we've seen this the failure of safe sport right we've seen the failure of sustainability initiatives we've seen the failures of Oh, we'll do a low build. We'll do a low, you know, no build Olympics. Or like people have been displaced a couple of years ago already for an event in 2028. Like we know that the outcomes will be the same. They might look a little different or they might be able to like change the stats or maybe mitigate the harm very, very, very so slightly. Like that's to us, like in the world we live in, like that's not enough. Like that's like, oh, there's less of a carbon footprint for 2028. Like A, we think that's bullshit. And B, it's like, no, you won't. You will find ways whether you plan to or not to like throw all this out the window because there's no accountability. And I know that's like kind of maybe a word that's been used to death at this point, but there's just absolutely no accountability. So people have tried, people have also presented alternatives. Like I mentioned earlier, like the workers Olympiad and other efforts um, 
where they've, you know, I think lived up to the Olympics mission better than the Olympics have to the amateur kind of the sport, what's all come together. Yeah. You know, like all that stuff, like, so you can do it, right. It's just, if there's the will, if there's, and I think the, you know, we're not really sure, um, you know, we're not in, we think, we think the easiest way to get there is by stopping one or multiple of these, these Olympics, I think. Um, and that's kind of the main, the overall broader strategy, if I may, but it's in, in, and just doing as much education and getting people to pay attention to what's going on. And like, in some ways it's, yeah, we have these two, you know, human rights quote, uh, disaster bombs, like with Beijing and Qatar next year. And like, otherwise I might be a little bit worried about the kind of narrative resetting, but those present other different challenges for the Beijing one in particular. I'm just, we're so not looking forward to that conversation in many ways, being American and like, how bad America's perception and, and twist it is of, of China and how anti-left and all this stuff's going to be, but we'll be out there kind of trying to present our analysis as much as we can. But um, at the very least, the whole Olympic model is still going to be highly scrutinized by mainstream people in America. So we're going to, it's still hard to tell, but I, th I think that's kind of, I, 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 and I'm not saying this like sarcastic. I really want people to come to us and like show us how the Olympics are going to be reformed. I, I haven't seen like a real argument for that. And just if anyone who knows anything about how the Olympics operate, they're like, it's a black box. It's like, it's a more open presenting version of FIFA, but it's like in some ways maybe even worse. And it, I don't, I don't, I don't know how anyone could, um, even if you love the athletes, like think that these people are working in their best interest. Like, I don't care if you want to call whatever the next thing is. The Olympics, all the alternative to that, if like people are really, I think, you know, tied to maybe the, the symbology and all the stuff, like, I, if if the IOC will let you take that stuff, they probably won't, but like take it. But I don't think I don't think we need any of that stuff, you know. Yeah. Right, and and so you mentioned this already, but you know, a lot of people counter this position, saying that the only ones negatively impacted by canceling the Olympics are the athletic laborers who train for the events and, and the athletes who are not treated well anyways, right? Like that's the issue is that what this, this position is defending is like, oh, well, what about the athletes? And they're not being treated better anyways. So if we can't reform the Olympics, and interestingly, like we had this sort of debate on Twitter and asking people to like provide actual evidence that the Olympics could be reformed and of course people can't um but right if, if we can't reform the olympics how could we move forward to preserve the desires of the athletic laborers and also alleviate the harm and exploitation that is caused by such a, a really horrendous mega events and the capitalist violence it entails and you mentioned already the worker olympics but we really would like to hear more sure yeah um i think yeah i think some i think it can come about a lot of ways but i think it would behoove everyone if, if um, this Olympics in particular gives, you know, worker, Olympic worker organizing efforts. I know about a couple of them that are in this kind of vein, um, uh, gives them some momentum to start pushing back and, and, and organizing more. It's a, it's a bit hard for us to organize around Olympic athletes just because it's just none of us are. You know, it's like that's not that's not really our world. We've, we've we've spoken with a few that have kind of had issues with the Olympic system, and we've had some we've we've gotten to know their story. Some in LA, and like they and they understand our analysis, and and uh, but yeah, I I I, I fully encourage that. You know, we have a pretty open door when it comes to things. We're willing to meet with like kind of you know talk to people from all all around as far as like 
what what is possible like where do we where do we like intersect what common goals do we have and so we like we encourage that like most of our efforts because we're all volunteer grassroots as well i should just mention are focused on you know there's no money there's no like executive board and what we do no one's full-time to do this so it's like i think most of our like our, our roots are in the community side but i i really see that as being one of the major paths forward if these two sides can come together and present um a version of that so what you happened and i don't have it in front of me i'm a little rusty but um what, what you saw happen i think as early as the teens um and then it, it was definitely getting going after world war ii or after world war one rather um you know in the, in the 30s uh were several different efforts both in europe and i want to say chicago um was one of the one of the most held where you saw several anarchist slash communist uh alternatives to the games one of the groups was called uh sazi i believe s-a-s-i and uh and they were based in um europe and so i think it was the 32 games where you had a turnout at one of these events where it was like kind of i think there were different rungs of competition where they had like the more you know quote or like the elite athletes i guess you would say and then you'd have like categories where it's like no these are actually like amateurs like anyone any person could go walk on and throw the discus or whatever or run the mile um so you had different tiers of competition and i believe one of them had more the one in 32 had more attendees than the 32 olympics in la if i'm not mistaken or like ballpark around the same so there was you know both participants and people coming to watch this thing so it's obviously right before the advent of television as well but um you know pre-television world you could you could hold alternatives that um, actually, I think, tried to embody this like leftist transnational, like we're not warring countries, we're not, we're dropping our nationalism or whatever uh, together. And they had different, and I think they kept on getting interrupted with by the world wars. And I don't, and I don't go super deep on this subject. I probably should at this point, but, um, and, and I, I believe one of the movements got absorbed into the Olympics, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and eventually by trying to like kind of they they saw what it was and then wanted to kind of and that's probably why we don't hear why, why we haven't heard of it and also because you know i think there are other labor issues in general just like macro wise of like what's happening to the labor movement in different cities where the olympics are being held in general since the you know 60s or 70s so um but yeah it's like and again most people don't know this there's some footage i believe and, and like i said it's like i think if it was happened later and we had more media coverage of it it might make it more seem more possible but i think I think if someone wanted to do that now, they could. My fear, one of my personal fears, and I think even by putting, by saying it, I'm kind of putting it out there, although other people have obviously speculated this. My fear is like a tech billionaire coming in and saying, all right, we're going to do the Olympics on, where, you know, on, on, on my private island and where there's even less, like maybe people won't be displaced on your private island, but it's like, that's, I, that doesn't sound like it's it either, you know? It, we definitely do feel like it, any alternative should come from the opposite places, the thing we're kind of coming from, and not this like rich oligarch european royalty kind of background that the ioc has like no henry kissinger's involved i think is the, the way to go well and we kind of started to jump in we we've seen that and and dr matt hodler can speak much more uh uh kind of firmly about this but we've seen that a little bit at least with the international swimming league which is an attempt to create like a professional swimming league that can raise the profile of elite international swimmers, but also pay them a decent wage. And it is it is uh, founded and organized by a Ukrainian 
like millionaire, right? So like even though the effort there is to ensure that swimmers can get um, a really decent salary and they do, like they do get paid well, which is great for swimmers, but like they hosted the their tw fall 2020 swimming swim series in Hungary like during the pandemic when you know hospitals were overrun and the government was which is very authoritarian fascist right so like that's the to speak to your issue that it needs to be something that's done well and that is not simply run by an oligarch or a millionaire or something that has you know a lot of money and a lot of resources and would use them in a really unethical way like that's a great example of something that benefited athletes to an extent, but then also has these really seemingly really horrible origins and probably lots of other details that we are not privy to, right? Um, so I think your point about making sure that they are sort of done really well and done, you know, in a very ethical way, I think that's something that we really need to keep in mind. I, I do want to talk a little bit about the 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 transnational work that you kind of mentioned off the top of the show and what you and other grassroots organizers have been doing in opposition to the Olympics. So we've talked a lot about LA, but could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing with um, Brisbane, Paris, Denver, Calgary, London, Rio, and, and a host of others? Sort of what forms of solidarity have you experienced working with other organizations who also oppose the games um, and for all the important reasons that we've talked about today? Yeah, sure. Um, so we've, since day one, we were talking to folks from like Boston and Rio, right? And some people who had recently had experience either with the Olympics or kicking the bid out or, and um, we've kept in touch with a lot of these groups and we've definitely had an intense relationship with the folks in Tokyo and throughout Japan. Kohongaru no Kai, who's, you know, largely unhoused and formerly unhoused folks, they're kind of leading the charge there. There's another group, Okatawa Link, which is um, a media and academics in Japan. And those are the two main groups we've been working with there. We went out in to Japan like a year before the Olympics were originally slated to start in 2019 to do a bunch of, you know, um, organizing with them, essentially protests, Skillshare sets, educational events, all sorts of stuff, getting to know them, you know, in real life. And folks from Korea came who had, you know, worked on the Pyeongchang Olympics and who are facing maybe another bid down the road. We're not sure. Uh, folks from London. Uh, I'm blanking right now. Paris, the No Paris crew. So the No Paris Korea, excuse me, Japan and our crew and the LA folks are, I think, all coming it from this anti-capitalist, anti-gentrification framework. And so I think we have like a really strong like bond and we work very closely with them. Like we work, we talk to some of these folks on a weekly basis. Um, we have a transnational call and um, we have, you know, academics in Europe and other organizers in Europe and, and all different time zones and stuff. And that's really cool. And we're just, you know, we're, we're trying to build an international movement with no money and just grassroots, you know, power and recognizing all the issues that the way not just the Olympics, but capital is working in all these cities. And sometimes it's the same exact players, you know, that we're fighting against outside of the Olympics, but um, you know, like, like developers that are developing the same stadiums in our cities and so forth. And that's been really powerful. And that was amazing to go to Japan and get to see all this stuff firsthand and how familiar it looks to us in LA. And, um, and since then, we've also been talking to groups that I would say, like, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to help stuff, get stuff going on the ground in Brisbane. We've talked to some people in political power there. We're now talking to like, People trying to get a grassroots kind of campaign going. Uh, we talked to folks in cities that I would say, you know, like don't necessarily share our politics necessarily, but share our goals and, you know, pushing the Olympics out. Like I'd say Denver and Calgary kind of fit that, kind of fit that more kind of 
maybe centrist mold, but like we're still happy to share information with them and keep an open line. Well, you know, most of those folks that have kicked bids out are like kind of like less involved um, on the day to day. Um, but for everyone else, it's yeah, it's just this. We're just kind of all figuring out. There's obviously like language barriers and time time differences, like anything else that can um, make things difficult. But um, it, it's a really amazing group of people to work with. There's there's you know we have people that work in Olympics LA like kind of on our day to day stuff that don't live in LA still. You know like it's kind of it is kind of in Zoom has kind of helped make that popular more possible. And you know we were doing a lot of Zoom before you know COVID, so we were kind of well equipped for that just because some of our people were in different parts of the world, but it's um it is what it is we might end up somewhere next year in one of these other cities for a second summit not sure yet but um it, it's uh we really need to what's been we really need to kind of have like come together after the paralympics i think as a group i think we're going to have some sort of big strategy session to kind of get on get on you know kind of process because so you know the, the protests and everything is still going really hard in in japan and uh and they've been going so hard for a decade essentially so they also need to get some rest over there as well, like we all do. I think we're all a little, just a little burned out from how intense the media cycle was like, for this Olympics. Yeah. yeah. No, that's, a, that's totally fair. And, and uh, we appreciate all of the, the work and the labor that that um, takes um, and wish you the best in all of, all, all of the, uh, in the fight going forward. And obviously you can reach out, um, to us if you need anything, if you would like to amplify yourselves or if other groups, um, would like to amplify things. The website is nolympicsla.com. You can follow, um, the organization on Twitter at nolympicsla or at no Olympics LA. Johnny Coleman, it has been a an absolute pleasure to have you on the end of sport. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. I'll, we'll be in touch.